Ben Marks, and this is GrottoPod. In today's episode, author Lindsay Crittenden speaks with her friend Michael Frank about his first novel, What is Missing, which was published in October by FSG. The conversation was recorded on December 3rd, 2019, at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Enjoy. So here we are in the Grotto Pod, and I'm Lindsay Crittenden. I'm a member of the Writer's Grotto, and I'm delighted to welcome my good friend, Michael Frank, who's here to talk about his first novel, a gorgeous piece of writing called What is Missing? Thank you for having me, Lindsay. I appreciate it so much, and thank you to the Grotto for welcoming me here this afternoon in San Francisco. Well, it's great to have you back, Michael. You know, it's especially meaningful for me, I think, to interview you here because I joined the Grotto, and indeed the Writer's Grotto was started, you know, 25 years ago now, as, you know, out of the real belief that writers benefit enormously from being in community with other writers. And, Michael, you and I have known each other going on some, uh, quite a while, and we've known each other not only as writers, but but largely as writers. And I treasure so much our relationship in terms of the friendship, of course, but also you are, for me, a really trusted reader and a sounding board. And I like to think I've been some of that to you as well. And you're someone I know who benefits from and makes use of other readers during the drafting process. And I thought maybe we'd start with that, with the role of community in in your writing this book? That's a great question, Lindsay. And as you pose it, I was thinking, in a funny way, I wonder if we're such good readers of each other's work, and I think we are, because we don't live in the same city and because Mm -hmm. we don't socialize regularly. You know, we have a very close and respectful friendship, and it feels like we resume wherever we left off when we come back together. But a certain amount of geographical and maybe even psychological distance allows us to be totally candid with each other, I think, about our work. That's a really interesting point. I had never thought about that. Strangely, though, as you know, one of my other key (laughs) leaders is my younger brother, and I can't say the same of him. Well, and also... Andrea, who, My good who friend lives Andrea in New York. Chapin, but so. I think that distance, geographical, or, you know, I mean, we talk, we talk fairly often. We email and text maybe more often. But I think, you know, weeks, six weeks, two months might go by and you'll say, hey, would you look at a story? And I'll say, glad to. And let's catch up on what else is going on. Right, but I'll be but reading the this does. story, not in a vacuum, but I'll have a bit of distance on it. And I think there's a kind of... I think also we've really established a trust where I can say to you, this is not working. So I think there are two key, at least two key factors in uh, sharing one's work with other readers. Trust, of course, is number one. You have to trust that that the reading of the work is separate from any as many other factors as you can determine. So. In that sense, the geographical distance, or maybe this, the friendship in a separate pocket, if you were, if you will, I think are both very contributory, because what you're doing is you're laying yourself open to criticism early on in the creative process or at a midpoint. But when, nevertheless, you're going to be vulnerable, you you know that things are not finished, you may be lost, you may be, you know, triumphantly happy with what you've done, but somewhat insecure. You want that airing. You want to see if what you think you've put on the page is resonating with someone on the outside. And the other word that popped up, of course, we were speaking geographically about distance. But for me, every draft following the first one is all about getting that necessary 
perspective and distance, standing up back as a painter would, perhaps from a canvas to see, is this really working? Is the story singing? Does it feel true? Is it too cluttered? Usually there's too much of it. There's too much mm -hmm. writing. There's too mm -hmm. much information. I think that that's typical first staff material for you, for me, for most of the people I see, whose work I see. But then you always ask, and I'm always grateful for those tough questions. You know, you push you me. You ask them too. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and all my readers ask those difficult questions. And it's really uncomfortable sometimes, yeah. even from your yeah. trusted reader, isn't it? Or even sometimes especially from your trusted readers, because I think however unconsciously we may do this, I think there is some sort of expectation that, oh, Michael knows me so well, he'll get it. And I think what you're saying about the distance and the trust is, is, on, is on the other hand, entirely predicated on the fact that you're not going to get it unless I've made it in a way that a reader can get. In other words, you understand me, you know me, I know you, we, we get each other as people, but still, you've got to communicate it to the reader. So, um, and, and, and that being pushed is uncomfortable. I mean, I think of of my essay that that came out recently that you helped me so much with. And I remember, you know, sometimes you you would say to me, and you know, you're almost there, you're almost there, but you just kept pushing on that one place, and I was resistant. I was resistant, and I was like, but Michael's pushing for a reason, and. Made, yeah, I didn't feel like better. that. I mean, you you actually seem quite upset with me sometimes for <laughs> pushing on, on certain spots in it. But I have to say that my own personal conscience doesn't allow me to make any even my close friends feel better about their work because that's where I think my friendship does kick in or my sibling relationship with my brother, my younger brother, Stephen B. Frank, who is a writer of young adult novels, kicks in because I am protective. And I know that it's pretty rough out there. You're going to have very unsympathetic, very rushed, very harried, very overworked, very critical potential buyers and readers looking at your work, editors, in short, and you want to give them the absolute best thing that you can, that you're capable of. And as long as you're capable of going back in again and making it better, from me, you're going to hear that. And I'm hoping I'm going to hear it from you this summer. A good example, I sent you this essay, as you know, that ran last week on Time Magazine. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I began sort of far left field of, of where I yeah. ended up. And, and I you... think I wrote, get to the point, what is this about? Exactly. Or, yeah. I hate that question. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> But I, after quite a bit of work, I think it ended up somewhere viable. And it continued to go through its evolution the way these, these things do. The novel we're here to discuss today, What is Missing, which was just published by FSG, is another case in point of our of really fruitful working relationship that we have had over the years. Well, let me let me just bra let me just interrupt you for a sec because I want to back up just a bit and talk a little bit about this notion of because what I often struggle with is in the early parts of a project, whether it's a novel, whether it's an essay, whether it's a short story, but I think especially with a novel, having the, the question of when to show it to readers and when, you know, with an essay, it's one thing because you know you're going to try to wrap it up at 2,500 words and you need a feedback on a messy first draft. But when you have a novel and you're just starting out and you have an idea of maybe who your characters are and of maybe where you're going and you're, you're tentative, you're a little tentative, I'm beginning to think, and I'm not necessarily saying that you'll agree with me, but in my own work, I'm sort of feeling like I almost shouldn't show it until I have a sense of where I, the writer, am wanting to go with it, or, or my reader might give me feedback that is directive in a way that isn't helpful. 
I, I've often sensed that with you, that you're, you're, you are an, another layer of wrangling with this experience is when to expose it to the mm-hmm. outsider. And I brought up my novel earlier, I think, with the idea mm-hmm. of steering us into that very conversation. I don't think I've ever given anyone anything that hadn't reached what I would call a scratchy first draft or an okay first draft. Yeah. Anybody to read, you mean? Anybody to read. One of my readers, you or Andrea or Steve, Certainly not my editor. So I see that. But then I think afterwards, sometimes it helps to get people to weigh in a little bit more quickly. Because I think once you've broken the back, so to speak, like Mm -hmm. opened up the whole carcass of the thing or established it, whatever metaphor you want to use, mapped out your story. I like carcass. I like carcass. Carcass It feels like it's like carving that turkey, you know, at Thanksgiving. And there's some breakage involved in it. There's some ugliness and there's some grease and sinews. Quite a lot. And and I think that sometimes it can be quite useful to to get some outside energy. You Mm -hmm. know, you don't Mm -hmm. always have to give the actual work. You can say, this is where the story is going, Mm -hmm. run some ideas past people. I know that I can be quite opinionated and I can. No, never. No, never. I also can. I can bring up a lot of story ideas fairly quickly mm-hmm. uh, for other people's work. Yes, you can. Yes, for yes. other people's work. Yes. And, but, you know, I never intend those. Rarely do I intend those to be actually the direction in which my fellow writers should go. But in terms, I, 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 I think of them as provocations, incitements, mm-hmm. suggestions. Mm-hmm. You know, my my aunt, who the screenwriter, Harriet Frank, Junior used to call them dummy lyrics, which I always love. You know, you say something that isn't quite what you mean, but is getting in the direction mm-hmm. of. And I think that personally can be very stimulating. Yeah, and it helps to create sort of a scaffolding of what you might build in that space. And I think, too, like so much, it's, it's, it is entirely, because you mentioned earlier, I can be maybe a little prickly. And I think from from for me as a writer... I may want to hold things, keep things a little closer to the chest than you. And that's okay. You know, we don't walk in lockstep as no, writers. No, and, and I think different sensibilities, different levels of mm-hmm. narrative, uh, virtuosity, energy, over-explanation, under-explanation, overwriting, underwriting can only help because you want to be questioned, you, mm-hmm. you know. And it's also entirely, I think, fine and you know i mean this is something i use in my teaching as well as with my readers like you is to is to say tell me you know i'm giving this to you to read of course i want to hear whatever you say but i'm i'm not at this point i'm not particularly interested in x i'd really like your feedback on y and again there's a way to do that 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 isn't overly isn't shutting the other person down but is sort of saying you know, it's still finding its way. So just tell me what's alive for you. And as you say, that might be a place for those dummy lyrics or those, you know, oh, what about this? What about that? Or just brainstorming with someone, not in a prescriptive way, but in a you way know, that opens recently, up to possibilities. Recently, I read a draft of my brother's new middle grade novel in progress. And I had such a passionate idea about how it should end, you know, my take on the ending. And then he said something that made me rethink it. And so I threw that one out and came up with another one. And then, of course, he came up with his own in the end. But I think it's really about trying out various possibilities, looking at various paths, opening various closed doors to make sure that you've looked behind all of them. Because I do think that writing narrative is a is is really like traveling down a very long ha- road or a very long hall. I like the hallway metaphor. Hallway with yeah. four a uh, road with forks or hallways with these doors. What's behind every door? Something. 
It may be the right one room to go into. It may be the wrong one. It may be one to glance into. It may be one to move into for a while. And then there may be another door. There's so, no clear way to, to make, your, make your path through a given story. You have no, to just no try map. them. Yeah. There's no roadmap. So, so I think that's a really good metaphor to get us to talking about the novel, What is Missing? Because one thing, I read the, a version of this novel maybe eight, seven years ago. Likely. An early version of the novel. And then I've read it again as a finished book. And what strikes me in reading it as a finished book, I think even if maybe if I hadn't read it before, is... Well, the virtuosity in my mind, the really skillful way you construct not only a plot that is very much of a page turner, but also the way you you go into these three characters' points of view. You know, we get the character of Henry, we get the character of Costanza, we get the character of Andrew. There are other characters in the novel, certainly characters who are quite important and play an important role in the unfolding of the narrative. But these are the three point of view characters. So if we think of each of them, perhaps, as a room that, that, you, that you opened up and you said, oh, I'm going to spend more time in this room, as opposed to, say, Leopold, another character who's very important and plays a quite decisive role in moving the plot along, we don't ever get his POV, although we get to know him quite well. Can, so can you talk a little about the early writing and sort of set, set the finding scene. the story? Right. So you've pointed to three characters, which suggests that there is a triangle at work here. In fact, the, the novel is structured around a triangle. It's a father a son and a woman. The woman is Costanza Ansaldo, a half-Italian, half-American translator, recently widowed. Her husband was a leading American, Jewish-American novelist in New York City. And he died a year ago, and she's gone to Florence, a place of great importance to her, to restart her life after a year of mourning, a year of transition. And there she meets first this young, sensitive photographer, Andrew Weissman, 17, turning 18, who is traveling with his high-octane, uh, vivid, uh, powerful father, Henry Weissman. One might even say domineering. One might. Himself recently divorced. Uh, not so recently not divorced, so recently. but still working through the experience of having been left by his wife, Judith. And as it happens, a practitioner in the field of uh, reproductive medicine. Costanza had told herself a story about her life, as many of us do, and that story led her to believe that she did not want to become a mother, that she didn't want to have a child. She, made, she came to that after a struggle of trying to become pregnant with her husband, but eventually resolving her thinking uh, that she was going to remain single. She meets Henry. They're attracted to each other. The convenience of his profession, the situation that presents itself to her, the surprise of a f sense of being able to restart her life all change her thinking. And, and the story uh, unfolds as she tries to have a baby with Henry, as she tries to build herself a, a new life in New York, as he tries to enter into a new relationship, all the while with the threaded throughout with the presence of his son, who was also in, in his way quite interested in Costanza. And uh, Costanza in him. And Costanza Some in him. And so uh, just to say one more thing about the book, and then, and then we can talk about the process of making yeah. it real and mm -hmm. trying to bring it to life. It's a book that is very much about longing and yearning. 
for things that are missing, and specifically for Costanza, this unborn baby. But it's also a, a longing for missing information, to understand one's origins, to strengthen relationships that have felt that feel quite emptied out between the brothers, between the father and the son. There are the missing of the Shoah. Leopold, you mentioned, he's Henry's father. He's a survivor of the Holocaust. There's the dead husband. There's Costanza's dead father, a suicide. There's the ex-wife yeah. of Henry. So there's a, I tried to look at the importance of negative space in storytelling and in lives, because I think we all, after a certain point in life, live with absence, loss, grief, things that are missing. And they inform us a great deal in different ways. And I think when you first mentioned the hallway with the doors, I actually thought of the what is missing because those people that are gone but who very much leave a quite large absence behind. I'm thinking of Costanza's father who committed suicide and something you know, she still obviously grapples with, is almost in in a room. You know, he's in a room. That it's knowledge his, is in a room. His. And so much of the novel is constructed around not o- only opening doors to what or who is missing, but opening doors to see information that has been kept for one reason or another, uh, secret or... Um, that just does not have, that has not been out in the air for all to know and see. And that unveiling of those, for lack of a better term, family secrets or hidden pieces of knowledge is is also what is missing. Exactly. And their return to the scene or their appearance on the scene in the lives of these characters is, I I think and hope, what pushes the story forward, which changes it, which changes, is what changes the dynamics among the, the central characters. It creates a certain amount of anxiety as well. Well, I said to Paige Turner before, there's a great deal of tension because there's there are things we do not learn until the very end, and I'm I'm going to be very careful not to not to give those away. And we don't always know what we don't know when we're reading this. We we only learn some things until later on. So it's not it's not a novel in which we know from page one there are all these secrets. They come out in a very what feels to me as as a reader what felt to me as a very organic way, very much triggered by Costanza and Henry in this apartment, trying you know tr- trying to have a baby, and with Andrew there and all that that engenders. I like to hear the word organic. That makes me very happy. And that suggests a sort of naturalness, right? But now coming back to process, I think we all know that one doesn't wake up with a story as complex as this one in its structure and in its conception, fully formed, waiting to simply be typed out with over one's morning coffee. Yeah, so talk more about that. I began with Costanza in terms of the characters. That's not true. I began with, actually, I saw all three of them fairly clearly. What I didn't know was quite how they were going to fit together. So in the beginning, you had a, a, a fertility doctor who was a, who had a son and a woman that... Who was going to have something, who was going to have something to do with both of them. And I think quite, you know, to speak personally, I had just I've been spending many years trying to figure out how to tell the story of my own family, which was dominated by my mercurial and larger-than-life screenwriter aunt. And your previous novel, or previous memoir, excuse me. And the subject of my memoir. But I I actually began this novel before I wrote the memoir, but I was working for years on trying to find a way to tell that story. And so I think I've been, for a long time, preoccupied with the idea of these very powerful dominating figures in family in family structures and in family life and 
backing up even further, you know, I first tried to tell the story of my aunt as a novel, which I, th I spent a number of years writing and which was never published because my readers at the time almost universally said that no one this extreme is credible. <laughs> no one like this exists in real life. And that was a very hurtful rejection on two fronts because it was as first as though to say, well, your family cannot exist or cannot be real. Right. And second to say you're not good enough right. to make it convincing. Right. And maybe I wasn't. I, I see now with hindsight. I think, though, the truth is that I hadn't detached enough from the lived experience to be able to turn it into a piece of, of convincing writing. But it's so interesting. This is a little bit of an aside, but I just want to say parenthetically, it's so interesting that comment oh, someone like this would never exist because she very much did exist and you wrote a memoir in which... But it's, it's something about the rules of fiction, the, the whole idea of verisimilitude. You know, just because it's true in real life, it doesn't mean it works in fiction exactly. and vice versa. Exactly. And I fiction think she would... has different rules. It does. And I, I think you could make anything convincing in fiction. I probably mm. didn't have the skills then. But as I said, I think it was more about not having enough perspective. Mm -hmm. Then I started this novel somewhat later, but I started this novel and I was obviously still quite dwelling on the reverberations of, of such a powerful personality in a family. And so I saw Henry and he came to me and he had a son in the Henry. same way that Henry and your aunt is Hank. Yes, exactly. Someone pointed out to me only way after the Was fact that? that nicknames for both of those people are Hank, right? Yes. And you totally get, unconscious like yeah, so many but, things. Right. I know it's a little surprising. You think that a, that writers should be really conscious mm -hmm. of what they're doing, and I think actually some of the more interesting it's things happen. It's amazing what happens unconsciously. What you're just it's putting so out there. It's so powerful, yeah. And of course, I had a sort of stand-in for me at the key point in my life when I was trying to seek my independence of voice and psychology. Andrew, Andrew meaning your late teens, and when I think it's such a key and moment he's of a transition. Runner. He's a runner. Yes, He's were. a photographer. I was I was a visual artist for a time in my life. At that point, we have things in common. But you know, Saul Vella once said, "If my if a character of mine needs something that I have, I give it to him." Mm -hmm. It's not the same thing as saying that I am right. in all of right. my characters, right? And so right. I think Andrew has a few things that he's borrowed from me. Perhaps even Henry does as much from my aunt. And then Costanza comes as 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 a really deeply imagined figure who was on a quest that I understood also because of my own life with my wife, in which we went through many years of infertility treatment. So I was channeling some direct experience, but very deeply trying to reimagine it into a separate and I hope compelling and I hope convincing story. So this is probably kind of a futile question, and it does, in the end, the answer doesn't really matter. But it's interesting to me, I feel like at moments when I think about the novel and when I look at it, I see it primarily as, you know when you look through a camera and you can play with depth of field and you can focus in on the petals and the background goes a little blurry, but the background's right. still there, but then you can change that and make the background sharp and the petal a little blurry. So in that way, I felt like at times this was so strongly a novel about that triangle and about family and about father-son, you know, Henry Andrew and Leopold and Henry and Costanza and her mother. So not just father-son, but mother-daughter, right. Costanza and her deceased father. You know, just these many layers of the, the family relationship and the triangle. But then at other times it's like, no, this is very much a novel about fertility. And it's not that it has to be one or the other. I think it's both. But that the novel can very much be about both. But I guess my question would be, in, in your mind, you said you began with these, you had these three characters. 
Did you see it as a novel in which the quest for fertility would be a key part of the plot? So I think the answer to that question is that it's not that easy to separate out. Yeah. There was an A line and B line right. often in stories. Right. I knew that I could make good use of the timeline of a fertility treatment, which sets a clock ticking. Excuse that, you know, too too obvious metaphor perhaps, but very vividly in life because it's a cycle of 28 days. You take drugs to stimulate your ovaries, various procedures have to, have to happen. They're checking, you're checking in regularly with test results. If there is an embryo in, resulted and was transferred back into the uterus, you have another clock, uh, clock ticking. And so you have a sense of suspense and drama. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be very helpful for mm-hmm. structuring these other mm-hmm. uh, themes and developments on the human level. And uh, my goal was to try to weave them in together you know, that she does two cycles of IVF treatment in the course of the, the book, but even the in-between time is about recovering from it right. physically, about sorting out your thinking psychologically. It really, from everything I have observed firsthand and I have read and women I've talked to, it can really play with your mind. And that is a very fascinating thing from the point of view of a stero- storyteller, of course. And we see that with Costanza. I mean, we see her the volatility of her emotions. We see her at one point pack a bag and decide she's going to leave she's going to leave Henry and then she I think she gets out of the cab or she gets out of the subway or something and turns around and walks back you cover that in those moments in the doctor's office in the waiting room undergoing the treatment are so vivid and I've not lived it myself but I know something through friends including yourself you capture it with a real authenticity well and I like to think that we might not all need to go through in vitro fertilization in order to conceive a child. We might not all even want to conceive a child, but we all long for something. We long for something. And we work hard. we long for connection. For connection. We we yearn to have things in our lives. If it's a writer, it might be to be published, you know. If it's in a professional situation, it may be to achieve whatever that next thing is on the horizon. So I think that the, I hope that there is a sort of Mm -hmm. universality in in the challenge of being so dominated by a quest that you have that it ends up reverberating through every aspect and corner of your life. And yeah, and I think we see in a way with Henry, again, not to, not no spoilers, but I think we see in a way how Henry's quest has helped propel the plot and also how he comes to see in some ways the narrowness of his quest, or he's made decisions along the way in that quest that have not always... Henry have learns not it. always thought of others. And I want to ask you a bit about that because I do recall when I first read the an early draft of this novel some years ago, Henry was not very likable. And he still, there are pages where I, I, you know, I think I wrote in the margins like, oh my God, he's being such a jerk. But then there are other pages where I felt a great deal of compassion for Henry. We see how much he has struggled with his very domineering charming but domineering father. We see how much, even as a grown, incredibly successful man, he still very much bears the burden of that father's heavy expectations on him, of being the child of a Holocaust survivor in some ways. And we, and at the end, I think we see him circumspect and much more willing to look at the ways in which the choices he's made. Have not always considered, he hasn't always considered the effects on those he loves. He's he's rather self-centered. At first. 
at first, at first but he yes. does change. Yes. And I think that's something that you must have worked on in, in drafts. Yes, and absolutely. Henry, I too did not like very much going in, and I don't know if that's a very good thing for a writer, mm. but it, it, it enabled me to put a lot of his vigor on the page, I think, to capture a lot of his energy. And his energy was dominating. His energy was was vibrant. His energy was attractive and also to his son a little bit repellent. And it was beguiling to Costanza, but also a bit unnerving to mm-hmm. her. Then I, the more I wrote about him, the more I realized, as with almost every character, and we had earlier the hallway metaphor, but I think now there's also this sort of refracting metaphor that we might think about or or knobs on a on a some kind of keyboard that or or mechan- machine almost that you have to constantly Maybe be changing camera. your camera, camera the viewfinders kaleidoscopes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you go to the doctor's office to be fitted for glasses and they give you different lenses mm-hmm. to look through you'll have mm-hmm. to constantly i think test what you're doing by switching your perspective and so mm-hmm. you need to see henry as a father you need to see Henry as a son. You need to see Henry in the role of potential son-in-law when La Costanza's mother comes. You need to see Henry with his employees, which we see very in this draft, in the final draft, not so much we did before. That's another thing is that I had written much more on, uh, on this book, probably twice as many pages, because I wanted to see Henry and all, and all the other characters in other contexts. And you explore them, you learn about them, you come to know them, and then you say, all right, I don't need, my story doesn't need to know all of this, but I do. For and me that, for me personally, I need to write and discard those yes, things. Yes, and that is so, I mean, we get back to where we began with the, the pro, because I remember a conversation with you where you were feeling pleased with your draft and your brother... Always a mistake. Or you were feeling, you know, it's good. It's it's in a, a good place where it needs to be. And your brother, who's been, you know, as you said earlier, such a trusted reader for you, said you've got to cut. And I don't know if it was Henry and his employees. I'm curious, and I don't know how much you want to say about this. No, specifics. I don't mind saying this at all. I mean, my wonderful editor, Eileen Smith at FSG, was the first person to suggest that the novel began a bit too slowly, that there was too much top-heavy material at the beginning. What do you mean top-heavy? But The book begins in Florence, it right. transfers to New York for the bulk of it, and then it returns to Liguria where Costanza end. is born. Yeah. And in Florence, I think, which I thought of as a kind of extended prologue, I wanted to lay... Mm. Mm-hmm. lay out the whole turf. I wanted to uh, push their relationship to a, a certain point. And I took a long time. I now see too long time doing it. It was a prologue of 125 pages is not a prologue. Okay. And I had trouble knowing where to stop it. And this is where I think an you outside mean to reader... stop the Florence section. The Florence section, which was introductory in its tone because the characters were getting to know each other. We were getting to know them. There was a clear sense of the story was going to move to another place both psychologically and geographically and in terms of the characters. But I was being too explicit, I think, is really the only way. Very much an early draft storytelling approach. I see it in the work, your work, the work of my friends all the time. And I I came to a point where I just, again, I lost my vision. I had been on it for too many years. And my brother picked it up and he drew a line at page 75 in the manuscript, which was, it first took me aback. I was, I, I thought, well, but they're not, they haven't even gotten to point X in their relationship. And he said something very astute, which is leave your reader yeah. hungry. Yeah. We're going to find out what's happening right. in the next section. And I looked at that 50 pages, which of course was 
whittled down from 150 or 200 pages originally, my work that I was so proud of, and I just press the delete button and off and it, went. it went. Yeah, and it was and the best thing that happened. And did you put some of that into the New York scene or did Very you Very little. I realized how correct he was that less in this case yeah. was most decisively more. Yeah. That leading leaving us hanging, leaving them uncertain, leaving 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 the storytelling uncomfortable in an uncomfortable unresolved place was a better choice for the for this particular book, as it often is. It's so interesting that you use the word uncomfortable, because one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, is just going back to this triangle of Costanza and Andrew, the 17-year-old, and Henry, Andrew's 55-year-old father. It's very clear that Andrew is attracted to Costanza. It's very clear that Costanza finds Andrew... Compelling. She enjoy, compelling... But once we get to New York, there are quite a few scenes that are quite charged where they come upon each other in the kitchen or um, there's a moment. There's nothing sexual per se, but there's a moment, I think, where he's bare chested at one point and she finds herself admiring his body. There's another where he's thinking about her or he's not even thinking about her in a certain way, but we he blushes when, or something. It's clear that there's still a, a frisson of, of interest, of attraction there. But you make the really interesting choice as the writer not to go too much into that. So we don't see Andrew, you know, lusting after, I mean, I wasn't writing damage, or, right? I'm not, it right. wasn't that, you it's didn't not a soap it opera be, in that sense. It's yeah. a triangle, but it's a right. more subtle kind of triangle. So, and I think Costanza herself, she's beguiled and intrigued by Andrew, but she's also very much made a commitment to Henry and thinks of Andrew as her, as her stepson. Although you know, that, I, think, I think people can feel multiple things for multiple people at once. And I think that I wanted to try to capture that yeah. because I think that, too, creates a forward-moving energy in a story. You know, I, I don't think we're all defined by... One kind of longing, one kind of desire, one category of connection. Costanza's connection to Andrew, while not, as you point out, explicitly sexual, can have an erotic charge mm-hmm. because of the commonality of interest, because of the way they read each other, because of their love of language, a play. Henry is a different tonality. He's Their conversations have to be hammered out more because Mm -hmm. he's not used to doing this work in a certain way, whatever this work is, this work at midlife of reigniting your life, of building a new relationship with someone you don't know who is of another background, a different religion, who speaks another language, who's had a big life behind her. All that requires work. And so that, too, is a kind of suspense. Will he or won't he? Will she or won't she? Where will they align? Where will they not align? Then you layer on the, the the actual biological clock, which is that if she wants to have a baby, this is her moment. You're speeding things up in a way that in five years earlier in her life, or ten years later, Would you have, might not. Right. It might not have. Right. I wanted. You might not have. I wanted really to capture her at a key moment of. I'm sorry to say, biological crisis for a woman, yeah. which is just yeah. simply it's unavoidable. Just what it is. You know, and it's interesting too because you don't you don't call the Florentine section, a prologue, but you do use a letter that Costanza writes to Henry 
four-fifths of the way through the novel that's it's at a quite pivotal plot point. And you give us that, and then you say 10 months earlier. And we go to Florence, and then three months after that, we're in New York, and then nine months later is the very end. But that choice to give us a little tease that there will be some kind of rupture, some kind of break seems, uh, rather than just plunging into the Florence section, that too layers a bit of tension. Uh, And I think I might have made that decision after I made that enormous cut, maybe out of uncertainty or maybe simply because I, as a reader, like to be thrown. Mm -hmm. I like to have some evidence dangled, if you will, in front of me or just put out there for me to bury in my mind because I think that In the same way that people live on different levels at the same time and can feel different things for different people at the same time, I think a reader can be reading a novel in different ways at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can be following more along one character or another. You can be going more for story. You can be wondering what's over the horizon psychologically. And, And I don't think one cancels out the other. And so I think by dropping in this little bit of Tease, if you will, or a, a, a small preview of something dramatic coming, it makes you even, I hope, a little bit more alert. I think as a your reader. antenna come up. Your antenna come up. You've you've read that, and then when you get to the point where they, where they seem to be moving towards a life together in New York, and then in the back of your mind, you've got this letter where she says, "I need some time away from you." Exactly. It, you know, and as a reader too, I felt like, "Oh no, you're moving way too fast. You're moving way too fast." Mm-hmm. So there are these moments, I think, and this is true of of any good novel where we're really we're both cheering on and kind of, "Oh, don't do that," but we're we want her to do it, but we. We don't want her to do it. I'm so happy to hear you say that because that is definitely what I felt as she was doing that on the page was, how can you be doing this? Right. And then I understood how she could be doing it as I, even as I questioned it. But I wanted to kind of shake her and say, you know, don't you realize what you're doing? Exactly. She, she's, you know, she's a handful, too, in a way. She there, is because she's very introspective and thoughtful. But there's this legacy of the dad the legacy of a suicide, not just a suicide, but Leopold leaves something behind. Costanza's first husband, who from whom she's been widowed, has left something behind for her to read. There's a way in which the dead have left something behind for the living that is very... Powerful. Too, it's powerful, and it's also somewhat oppressive. Um, right. And isn't that true in life, though? Yes, it has been in mine, yes, I think maybe yes, also in yours. Absolutely. The, the dead are always with us. Yeah. They are with us. So what's next? Well, Lindsay, thank you for asking. I'm working on a couple of things. I have a new novel that I'm just starting, but it, I've also been working on a kind of memoir, I suppose is the right way to describe it, which is about my friendship with a 96-year-old woman who happens to be quite by accident and unconscious choice, the same age and in a certain way a similar personality type, though not as far gone, as my aunt. And her name is Stella Levy and she's one of the 151 people who originally survived from the deportation of the Jews from the island of Rhodes. Right. And, and you've written a little bit about that? I wrote a little bit about Times. it that appeared in the New York Times. And, and basically the book I'm hoping to write about her is a mixture of a memoir of our friendship, the story of her life on Rhodes, and a big investigation into why we need to hear these stories still in 2019. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Finally, it's a book that will depict the difficulty of 
taking someone else's story. Uh, what does it mean to tell a story? What does it mean to listen to a story? What does it mean to translate it? We speak in Italian from one language to another, but from one person's life to another. And I really think that that is what my work is generally, the, the, the challenges of, of taking stories and retelling them or imagining them and putting them down, being challenged by them and trying to solve them, mainly overall trying to listen hard and closely. And isn't that what we all strive to do as writers? Anyway, I want to thank you so much and thank you to The Grotto and the podcast for Michael, welcoming thanks. me here it's today. Been great talking to you. Well, that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is concocted at the Writers Grotto in San Francisco, and it's produced by Susie Gerhard, Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingarner, and George Higgins. Music is by Sugartown. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ben Marks, and thanks for listening. Thank you.